Hello and welcome to Love Thy Lawyer, where we talk to real lawyers about their lives in and out of the practice of law, how they got to be lawyers, and what their experience has been. I'm Lewis Goodman, the host of the show, and yes, I'm a lawyer. Nobody's perfect. He specializes in underdog litigation. He is the David taking on the Goliaths of industry, government, and insurance. He is considered one of the most effective trial lawyers in the state, a super lawyer with multiple seven and eight figure verdicts and settlements. He's been featured on CNN, the Law Flip podcast, and Settlement Nation, among others. He has successfully argued in front of the California Supreme Court. He has numerous professional awards and honors, Arash Hamampur, welcome to Love Thy Lawyer. Thank you for having me. Sounds like a pretty cool dude you were just introduced. I hope I can live up to that feeling. I will. Don't worry. Don't try and tell my audience that you're not the superstar that you are. We're all superstars. I think the goal is just to get out of your own way and let your superstardom shine. Well, hopefully you can share with us a few of the secrets of doing that. Before we get into that, where exactly is your practice? You know, it's a virtual practice in the sense that we have a physical office with some staff in Sherman Oaks, California, but it's kind of irrelevant to where we practice. We practice all up and down the California coast, primarily in Southern California. And how would you describe your practice? We are an exclusively trial-based practice, meaning we take a very limited number of cases, all mid-seven-figure to eight-figure value, every single case we take with the intention of taking it to trial unless the defendant offers enough money that it's unreasonable to settle or not settle. We have 10 attorneys, but at one time we'll only have about 30 active cases, which is a very small caseload for that number of attorneys. Where are you from originally? Well, originally I was born in Chicago to two Persian or Iranian immigrant parents, Came to L.A. when I was 10, when we vacationed here and saw how beautiful it was with all the palm trees and the smell of jasmine in the hills. Told my dad, why are we living in Chicago where I have to shovel ice and deal with the dreaded winters of Chicago? And the rest is history. So where did you go to high school? In in Los Angeles area? I went to high school in West L.A. at a school called University High School, which is like Beverly Hills Light. So every one of every single one of my friends was rich, went skiing, bought fancy clothes, had a car at 16, none of which I had, all of which was a definite motivator for me to be successful in life because we were the uh, outlier Iranian family. We didn't have a lot of money, which was okay. Uh, I didn't mind it at all in the sense that it definitely lit a fire and let me appreciate working hard for what you get in life. Uni is a public school, correct? It is a public school. When you graduated from uni, is it okay if I call it uni? That's what we called it. That's what I thought. When you graduated from uni high school, where did you go to college? I went to USC. Interestingly enough, that school was not the great school it is today. I mean, it was a good school, but it wasn't like a top 10 school back then. You would go to USC when you couldn't get into UCLA because all the kids who took AP courses were going to UCLA with you. How was your experience in college? I would take screenwriting, acting, music mixing. I took all these interesting courses each semester that kind of lent the flavor to like enjoy the college experience rather than dread it in terms of all the prerequisites. 
At some point after college, you went to law school. Did you go directly to law school after college, or did you take some time off? Yeah, directly. I, I tell people that I needed to incubate some more in the uh, academic world before I was ready to hit the real world. Although I was working uh, part-time to full-time from age seven, 16, 17 on. Uh, so the entire time I was in college, the entire time I was in law school, I worked. But I went straight from uh, college to law school because I, I really just wanted to get going on my career. When did you first decide you wanted to be a lawyer? Probably when I went to law school. It was uh, back in the day when L.A. Law was on TV. And so it was either you go get an MBA and go into the world of finance or you go to law school and become a lawyer. And I thought being a lawyer looked cooler and more engaging and more fun. So that's the path I took. And literally because it looked better on L.A. Law. When you got out of law school, what did you first do as a legal job? Well, I, you know, I went to, a, it's an, oh, it's a great school, Southwestern, but it's not like you're going to get a killer job if you don't graduate within the top, whatever, 15 or 20. So I didn't have any job offers. Um, the only one that would hire me was my uncle, a medical doctor who did a lot of transactional work and was involved in a lot of litigation and thought he could use his nephew to clean up and handle a lot of his messes efficiently. And that's what I did, kind of learned uh, as I went along. All in law school, I clerked for a lawyer doing legal stuff, but not officially licensed as a lawyer. So I knew what I was doing by the time I graduated law school. I knew how to do pleadings, discovery, I knew how to take a deposition. So by the time I graduated and passed the bar, uh, I was of actual value to my uncle and his medical practice and his investments and other various things he did. What prompted you to leave that situation and go out to start your own firm? Well, I started my own firm at the same time that I was working for my uncle. My intention was always to have my own. I just needed the money like everybody else does to pay the rent and overhead, etc. So I worked for my uncle and then he allowed me to do some, kindly was cool, allowed me to do some of my own cases. And from the get-go, it was always a concept of start small, medium, then go to big, then go to super big and go to keep going in terms of the case size. It was always my intention to gravitate towards larger cases. But obviously, when you're first starting out, no one's giving you big cases because you have to prove yourself. So I had to be patient and prove myself case by case, which is what I did. Was there something that attracted you to tort law? Yeah, I'm, it's just literally, it's my personality, high-risk person. I don't like small rewards. I like big rewards. Like Literally, I tell people, if I go to Vegas, the only thing I want to do is roulette, like, you know, $100 on one number because that makes it worth it. Uh, a one-to-one or one-to-five-point-one odd is not enticing for me. So it's kind of how I live my life is I want big gains, big risks, big rewards. And tort law is definitely somewhere where if you have that kind of mentality and you're fearless and you love what you're doing and you want to make a difference, it's the perfect occupation, perfect profession. How is as actually practicing law either met or differed from your expectations? Oh, it's, it's way more fun, way more engaging. You know, when you start out, it's kind of dreary and, and, uh, and cumbersome to learn all the basics. You have to, and not knowing what you're doing. You know, if you're a type A person and you need to understand things inside and out before you feel comfortable, it's hard. It's going to take you time. But then uh, once you get the swing of things and you learn things and you are open and you kind of are efficient in the way you learn, 
uh, you can pick up different and more complicated topics. So it gets easier as it goes along, I would say, for sure. But you never stop learning. You're never there. You know, you're always a student. Now, I know you've had some real success in terms of verdicts, uh, that sort of thing. But before we get to that, what about just the, the day-to-day nuts and bolts business of practicing law? How's that gone for you? And how's that either met or differed from any expectations about it that you might have had? Well, I definitely have surpassed any expectations I have in terms of being a businessman because I, I'm not a good businessman. And so I'm like every good professional. I know what my limitations are. I learned what my limitations are and I learned how to delegate. And the key to a successful business in any arena is to surround yourself with competent, loyal, loving, good people. So uh, I delegated all of the business side to my cousin and he runs the firm and it's a great combo where he gets to use his unique talents to help the firm exist and grow. And I get to use my uh, unique talents to be the trial lawyer that I am. But, you know, business is hard and half of being, well, no, being a trial lawyer or a lawyer is your therapist your photocopy person, your repair person, your uh, consultant, your HR, your businessman, you're all that stuff. So you got to wear many, many hats to be a successful trial lawyer. And the goal is, as you grow your business, to bring in and keep talented individuals to take over those roles so that you can focus on what you do your best, what you do best. I tell people, you know, you could dry clean your shirts yourself. You could clean them, iron them, starch them, do whatever. But at one point, that $3 a shirt doesn't make sense for the $3 of your time, and you have to delegate. So that's how life is. You want to delegate as many things as you possibly can so that it frees you up to do what you're best at. Now, speaking of what you're best at, you've had successful litigation, and I'm wondering if you could tell us about one of those. One that came to mind for me is just before I came into my studio here to record this. The air conditioning has been going crazy in my building, so I brought my space heater in to warm it up a little bit, and it made me think of you. Can you give me any reason why that might have been? Well, yeah, I had this space heater case against the gigantic defendant Sunbeam, multi-billion dollar parent entity. The case was tried in Orange County Federal Court, which is one of the most conservative jurisdictions with limited voir dire and trials are done completely different than in state court with not a lot of leeway and wiggle room. Like literally you're doing everything from a podium, whereas in a state court, you're allowed to walk around in the courtroom. And in that case, the defendant offered like $5,000 to settle a a huge wrongful death, serious product liability case uh, that we ultimately got 60 million, approximately 60 million on, which was upheld by the court of appeal after multiple challenges, I think even to the Supreme court. So that space heater case is just one of many types of cases where if you look at it originally, you're like, how can you win this case? The defense seems super strong. Basically, it involved a family uh, wanting to save money on the heating expense. And so they used uh, space heaters and they used a particular space heater, which was a radiant heater, where even though it was marketed with an internal safety device that would shut it off in case it overheated or started a fire, the logic or design of radiant heaters is that if anyone understands them, especially this manufacturer who didn't, you can't put a safety device internally that would measure radiating heat 
three feet away because it doesn't measure it. And the radiated heat three feet away is greater than what would trigger the safety feature of this heater. So in, in essence, they're selling a space heater with a safety feature that they should know doesn't work, but the consumer doesn't know. And so essentially this individual buys this heater, a family, puts it near clothing, the clothing catches on fire, the internal device designed to turn it off to prevent a fire doesn't work. The customer, consumer, user doesn't know, a wife dies, three kids are left without a mom, husband is left without his best friend, without his wife, all because this defendant sold the space heater with a safety device that should never have been sold with that device. Now, to get to the way I explained it to you, it took two, three years, $700,000 in costs, 50 depositions, you know, millions of pages of terabytes of data, but that's what I do. I take complicated things, make it simple for everyone to understand and explain why this defendant has to be responsible for what they sold, which was a defective product. Jury agreed and awarded appropriate damages. How come the case was in federal rather than state court? Some cases go to federal court if there's not diversity, meaning if the if there's not a California defendant, then the defendant can remove it to federal court. The funny thing is these defendants remove cases to federal court because they think they have an advantage because federal courts are un, you know, they're un, unforgiving, super fast, super technical. But what these defendants don't understand is that's my realm. I mean, I'm, I live for technical rules. I live for you know, less is more. I live for speed. I live for formal rules. I thrive in that environment. So I, you know, when they remove it thinking, aha, we got an advantage, they have no idea they don't. They have a disadvantage. Most people are afraid of federal court because you sometimes either get limited voir dire or no voir dire because it's a unanimous jury verdict requirement, because it's more formal. I, I don't care what jurisdiction it's in. If it's a righteous case, I'm going to win it if it's winnable. Is there anything that you know now that you really wished you knew before you started practicing law? Yeah, be nice. You know, when you start out as a young attorney, kind of got a chip on your shoulder, especially when you're doing personal injury and people think, you know, you, you like literally you'd be handling these high-end cases and these defense attorneys who call themselves trial attorneys have either never tried a case or don't know what they're doing, they look down on you and they treat you uh, with disrespect, which is ultimately a good thing because they don't see you coming. But it does produce in an unevolved version of yourself hostility, anger. And I wish I knew earlier that those ways of reacting are counterproductive and not necessary. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that because I know you've given this some thought about the importance of treating other attorneys well, treating judges well, treating the people around you well, and how that really is a tactic that works. Well, look, my rule is always be nice. I'm always nice. You get more with sugar than you do with poison. Never do personal attacks. But I definitely believe if someone's lying or, or pulling a fast one, you need to call it out. What do you think's the best advice you've ever received? Stop talking and listen. <laughs> you know, we tend to, you know, attorneys love to hear themselves talk. And I'm one of those that I interrupt people and finish their sentences for whatever reason. So one of the best things I, I, someone ever told me is like, shut up and just listen. Do you think the system's fair? Of course it's fair. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 beyond fair. There's so many opportunities for either side to, to get justice. Now, I mean, if we're going to talk fairness in reality, it's not as fair for plaintiffs because these defendants and their insurance companies and their law firms, 
they can drag things out. They can withstand sanctions. They can play games. They do play games because for them, you know, a $5,000 sanction order for deliberately not producing records it should have produced is nothing. Whereas for the plaintiff, you know, that could be case ending. So there is an inherent unfairness in the sense of the disparity between the power of the plaintiff versus the power of the defendant. But that's where trial attorneys come in. Plaintiff trial attorneys try and level the playing field and, and really hold anyone accountable. It doesn't matter how big you are, how many law firms you have. We're going to take you down if justice requires you. If a young person was just coming out of college and thinking about a career, would you recommend law as a career? Absolutely. Every single successful businessman, businesswoman, most of them, not every single, most of them, you look at, have a trial, have a, a JD or, or a law background. It's a wonderful way to look at life, analyze things, issue spot, argue, know when not to argue, etc. So I think at a minimum, it's a good base for any career. But I, I think if you are passionate about making a difference and helping people and making big changes, being a lawyer is the best occupation there is. So let's say a young attorney were to come to you and say, give me your advice, Arash. What would you say to that individual? I get this question all the time. Be the best human you can be. Stop focusing on being the best trial lawyer or lawyer you can be. Be the best human. Inside, outside the courtroom, there should be no distinction between who you be. Become self-aware. Be kind. Be genuine. Be physically fit. Be mentally fit. Don't be selfish. Give back to others. Come from your heart. Be the best human you can be, and then you will shine anywhere you go. Well, what sort of things do you do in your personal life in order to achieve those goals? Exercise, yoga, read a lot of self, you know, self-help books. So my advice is just be the best person, read up as much as you can, learn what it is to be human, learn how humans work. It, you understand that you're never there. It's always a work in progress. There is no nirvana. Always understand that no matter what your circumstance, there's always joy and gratitude to be found no matter what. That's my advice. I think you said there's 10 attorneys that work in your firm now. Yeah, we're hiring some more as we speak. So what do you look for in attorneys that you hire? Have to be able to work independently, have a brain, care about what they do, love what they do, have a good work-life balance. I don't want my attorneys overworking themselves if they're working on the weekend. I really just say, hey, take the weekend off if you can. Usually they're only working on weekends if they absolutely have to. But just, you know, good work product, kind, polite, manners, smart, go-getters, passionate. Doesn't matter what college they went to, doesn't matter what law school they went to, doesn't matter what grades they have, I could care less. It's really just their output and results that count and the way they do it. You're someone who has said that you can achieve pretty much anything that you want to do by putting your mind to it. It's the truth. That's <laughs> the truth in America, of course. You can do anything. Can you be I, a little specific I, about some sure. things I, that that you could say, okay, here's something where I've Seems impossible, but I, I achieved it by putting my mind to it. Well, I want to be a DJ. I, I did it. I want to um, make music. I did it. I want to start a record label. I did it. I want to be the best trial attorney in the world. I did it. I want to be the best dad in the world. I did it. I want to be the best husband in the world. I did it. Whatever it is you want to be, whatever it is you want to do, whatever title, whatever character you want to construct, the only one standing in your way is you, literally. So dream it, do it, be it. Aim high. That's my motto. Tell people, you know, Elon Musk's idea of 
of aiming for the stars is putting people on the moon and he's the guy's gonna do it we're gonna have space travel right there's no doubt and there's no difference he's he's a human he's made of flesh and bone just like everybody else the only distinction is he's you know he believes in it he enrolls other people in doing it and he's done it but you can do whatever you want to have you had any interesting travel experience oh i mean one of the amazing things about being a trial lawyer and having a successful plaintiff practice is that you can you make, can make a really good living and travel all over the world. I grew up very, very poor. We, you know, our idea of travel when I was young was driving up to Lake Tahoe and watching my dad negotiate a $20 motel room down to $15. Literally, that was my travel experience. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the same as taking your kids to Italy and Spain and France and, you know, El Salvador and Guatemala and Mexico. You know, one of the perks of having a, a successful law practice is that you get to do things you would never otherwise get to do. And, you know, my life is about experiences, not about things. And the more experiences I can have, the more I can grow as a human. The world is a beautiful place and there's nothing better than sharing it with your kids from age five to 20, whatever. It's one of the best things you could do is travel with your children. Any place in particular that you thought was really great? You know, we've gone everywhere from like fancy, fancy Lake Como to Paris to one of our most favorite trips was we went on a houseboat in Lake Powell or Lake Mead, one of those two. And it was one of the most beautiful places if you've ever been. It looks like the, like a lake on a moon. I mean, it's literally one of the most breathtaking places. And it was one of the funnest, most simple trips. A bunch of families rented a houseboat together and went water skiing and jet skiing and wake surfing on the lake with our kids. And it was really just normal, simple, beautiful, you know, the grandeur of California and and the world we live in, sharing it with your friends and family, nothing better. We touched on this, but what about some recreational pursuits? What sort of things do you like to do outside of practicing law? Well, I mean, I've been going to clubs since I was 13. I just love music and I love house music and techno music. So one of my big endeavors these days is DJing, and I just DJed in Vegas at this big club uh, by Fortuity, Happenstance, uh, Serendipity. But I love DJing. I love seeing DJs. I love going to clubs. I love hanging out with my friends. I, I love living life. If you couldn't be a lawyer, do you think that you'd want to be a rock star? 100%. I mean, I tried to be a rock star. I just didn't have the talent. So I, I always joke that I've, tried, I've be, turned rock star as a lawyer uh, but I'm not giving up on that. One of my goals is to play Coachella as a DJ, and it's going to happen within the next two years for sure. Let's say you came into some real money. Now, I know you've made some good money in your practice, but what if you came into real money, a few billion dollars? What, if anything, would you do differently in your life? Nothing differently. I would just donate more than I donate now. If I came into a billion dollars, I would make the most effective donations to get those kids in the universe who are not having access to their full potential have access. There are so many children in this universe, in this world, let's stick with earth first. There are so many kids on this earth who, because of their environment or their economics or their parents or whatever, will never live up to their potential, but have the potential to be the next Elon Musk or Obama or Oprah or whatever. So if I, you know, the more money I get, I'm more about transforming the lives of those kids out there who can make a difference, who don't have a chance, who don't know they have a chance. That's what I would do. Let's say somebody gave you 60 seconds on the Super Bowl and you could say whatever you wanted. 
to the world on the Super Bowl, big audience, what would you say to the world? I would literally say, be nice. Let's stop this polarized existence where we all hate each other. Let's find common ground. Let's go out and inspire kids who don't even know that they're going to be future leaders to be future leaders. Let's focus on the, you know, making the earth a better place. Let's focus on making it better for everybody. Let's focus on sharing the wealth. You know, most of the people that I talk to for this podcast are people who I know fairly well. And, but I don't know you at all, but you know, it's, it's everything that I've read and seen and heard about you is, is, is pretty impressive. So I, you know, I really am honored to talk to you. <laughs> um, I'm honored to talk to you. Thank you for giving me your audience. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Thy Lawyer podcast. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Really, I, I enjoyed this immensely. Very efficient and thorough. Thanks. That's it for today's episode of Love Thy Lawyer. If you enjoyed listening, please share it with a friend and subscribe to the podcast. If you have comments or suggestions, send me an email. I promise I'll respond. Take a look at our website at lovethylawyer.com, where you can find all of our episodes, transcripts, photographs, and information. Thanks, as always, to my guests who share their wisdom, and to Joel Katz for music, Brian Matheson for technical support, and Tracy Harvey. I'm Lewis Goodman. I don't have to show how smart I am, but, you know, just shut up and listen. It's an effective one for trial attorneys because it's very difficult for a lot.